This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Blessed Be Magic, a jewelry brand committed to reminding you of your magic by creating modern and subtle everyday talismans. Are you looking for witchy jewelry you can wear everywhere? Their gorgeous and lightweight bracelets, cuffs, and rings for the modern witch are beautifully subtle and can be worn daily for all occasions. I particularly love their new talisman rope bracelets, which are enchanting and fashionable in equal measure. Get yours today at Blessed Be Magic, that's magic with a K, and use code WITCHWAVE, all one word, for 15% off your first order. That's www.blessedbemagic.com and use code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. Blessed Be. The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Conjured Saint. It's a spectacular online resource for handcrafted magical artifacts, including ritual oils, sacred bath and body products, and spiritual cleansers. You'll find these and much, much more on theconjuredsaint.com. Even better, Witch Wave listeners get 20% off by using offer code WITCH, that's W-I-T-C-H, at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Go to theconjuredsaint.com and conjure some new magic into your life today. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. I hope the start of your year has been going beautifully so far. And on that note, I want to remind you that on this coming Friday, January 24th, we'll have the first new moon of the year. So if you're still in intention setting or resolution making mode, it's a really great day for ritual. I love working with the phases of the moon in my own practice, and many witches believe that the new moon is a time for seed planting, both of the metaphorical and literal kind, starting new projects, and setting new intentions. And if you continue this specific ritual work as the moon grows, it's said, the power of your intention grows. I often like to start a new spell candle for the new moon and then light it every day until the moon is full and the spell is at its peak, at which point I do a final offering or gesture to seal the spell and release it to spirit. 
So a waxing moon, especially when you follow it from the beginning, the new moon phase, all the way through to the full moon phase, is a great time for magical manifestation. The full moon is a time for magic around the completion of a cycle, release, banishment, or letting go. Likewise, you can also start a spell on the full moon because working with that ritual energy through the waning segment of the lunar cycle is very effective as well. But getting back to the new moon and this upcoming new moon in particular, I recommend doing some sort of spell this Friday or at least during this upcoming waxing part of the cycle. It's during this time you can cast your intentions for 2020 and help them grow. The phrase 2020 vision has been ringing in my head lately, and I'm hoping for myself and for the world at large that we will see with more clarity and be more visionary in our personal and collective work. And while we're on the topic of clarity, I want to be clear about something that's been coming up a lot, especially online, and that is this. You can believe in magic, or be spiritual, or be a witch, and believe in science, and medicine, and logic, all at the same time. I know, they are not exclusive of each other or in conflict with each other. I myself practice witchcraft, and I also go to doctors and get vaccinated and believe in climate change, and also believe that you have to do hard, practical work in the material world to manifest your dreams, and not just cast a spell and expect change to magically happen on its own. There's an article going around from a newspaper I admittedly don't particularly care for in the first place. But anyhow, in it, the writer decides to try and be a witch for a week. She has this really condescending and cynical approach throughout the whole article. Some might say she has her own confirmation bias. And she records her half-hearted attempts at things like altar building, spell casting, and divination, much of which she doesn't even bother to complete. By the end of her week, and by the end of her article, she dismisses the whole experience as, quote, built on a wobbling base of batshit. And then she goes on to say, quote, the recent zest for the mystic is part of a worrying backlash against the enlightenment values that have driven human progress. On the one end of the political spectrum, you get the anti-vax movement. On the other, climate change deniers. Standing in the light of a full moon to recite our resolutions may be harmless, but as a society, we shun science at our peril. Unquote. 
Okay, <laughs> so I have a lot of problems with this article, as you might imagine. First, trying anything for a week, which in her case is more like five days, according to her own admission in the article. This does not make you an expert in that thing. Learning to cook for a week does not make you a chef. Meditating for a week does not make you a Zen master. And praying to Mary for a week does not make you a Catholic, especially if you're attempting these things with a skeptical chip on your shoulder the entire time and you don't even fully follow the instructions. <laughs> that just drives me nuts. But anyhow, it's fine, because I'll tell you what, we witches are not actively recruiting, evangelizing, or proselytizing. Witchcraft doesn't have to be for everybody. It's here for those of us who resonate with it. Simple as that. However, I do take issue with that implication that mystical people are anti-scientific. It's a truly ridiculous assertion, especially when we remember that some of our most influential scientists, from Isaac Newton to Pierre Curie to Albert Einstein, expressed their own engagement with spirituality, and that today, people of many, many, many vocations, including scientists, engineers, and doctors, are also spiritual seekers. And some of them, yes, are witches. As Albert Einstein wrote in 1936, quote, Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble." Unquote. Witchcraft is the process of engaging one's mind, spirit, and body in symbolic, energetically infused gestures in order to interact with the divine and manifest change. For me, magic is complementary to logic, supplementary to science. I think of it as an amplifier a signal booster for one's intentions and actions. So when I'm sick, I may take a pill prescribed to me by my doctor, but I may also do a spell for healing. And I believe that both of these approaches are potentially effective and that they can, in fact, enhance each other. I do not believe that witchcraft can replace science or replace medicine in instances when medicine is needed. But I do believe it can help us focus and amplify our intentions and can invite capital S spirit to help work with us. 
My guest today, Benabel Wen, is someone I admire greatly because as a lawyer, she is logical, analytical, and pragmatic. But she is also a rigorous researcher, writer, and practitioner of a multitude of magical practices. We discuss all of this and more in today's conversation. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Brooke writes, I have a question about how magic can manifest as physical sensation. When I practice my grounding, I focus on my power moving to my hands, and I immediately feel them get warm and almost vibrating. I also experience the sensation when I hold my fiancé's hands. Have you ever heard of something like this? Is this something that happens to other people? Hi, Brooke. Well, not only have I heard about this, but I can relate to this myself. My grandma Trudy often talked about how she had healing hands, and both my mother and I myself also seem to have inherited this gift. My hands and my arms are also the first places that I feel a sort of tingling sensation whenever I'm sensing something magical going on. And this is far from unique. In so many cultures, there are practices of laying on of the hands for healing or exchanging energy through hands. The Japanese practice of Reiki is probably one of the most well-known techniques. And if you watch the latest Star Wars film, The Rise of Skywalker, spoiler alert, you'll see a representation of this. At one point in the film, Rey, our hero, puts her hands on the wounded underbelly of a sandworm-type creature and heals it using the force which flows from her body and into the creature. This is even more significant when we remember that the Japanese word reiki comes from a combination of the word rei, meaning soul or spirit, and ki, or vital energy. So we have a character named Rei using the force, which some have described as ki, or in Chinese, qi, otherwise known as the life force. Rei, ki, reiki. I also learned that in real life, the actor who plays Ray, Daisy Ridley, has a sister who is a Reiki instructor, which delights me to no end. Geekery aside, and getting back to your actual question, I think that having energy transmitting hands is most likely something all humans are capable of. It's just that some of us are more sensitive to it or more socialized to acknowledge it. I also believe that our most powerful magic is somatic. In other words, that it is of the body, not just the mind. 
When I'm doing some sort of spellcraft or healing or ritual making, I feel physical shifts happening in my body. And as I spoke about on the last episode, I use a lot of different techniques to raise energy in my body with which I then infuse my spells. So yes, Brooke, you are in very good company, and there are lots of areas of study you can pursue to learn more about this gift that you have. High fives all around. Now on to my guest. Benabel Wen is a writer and practitioner of many Western and Eastern esoteric systems, including tarot, astrology, numerology, feng shui, and I Ching. She's the author of the books Holistic Tarot, an integrative approach to using tarot for personal growth, and The Tao of Craft. Fu talismans and casting sigils in the Eastern esoteric tradition. She's also the creator of the Spirit Keepers Tarot Deck and her annual Metaphysician's Day Planner. On top of all that, she has taught many classes on a plethora of occult topics, both online and at such varied spaces as the Omega Institute, Stanford University, UC Berkeley, and PantheaCon. If that's not enough, she's also a full-time lawyer. In today's conversation, Benabel discusses how she, well, does all of this, and how we too can use occult techniques to make the most of our lives. We also talk about the ways in which she balances her moonlighting magic with her corporate vocation, as well as her philosophy on bringing Eastern esoteric knowledge to a Western audience. Benabel joined me from her home in the Bay Area via Skype. Benabel Wen, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, Pam. How are you? I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy you're here, Benabel. Thank you so much for joining me. And there is so much that you do and so many different things that you create. So we're going to try to touch on as many of them as possible. But I actually wanted to start our conversation being mindful of the fact that this is the top of a new year, 2020. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. And you actually came on my radar through this beautiful planner that you produce called the Metaphysician's Day Planner. And I would love for you to describe to our listeners what the Day Planner is, first of all, and how you came to create it. Well, it's something I always did for myself since I would say college. So I would just buy a regular day planner and then just outfit it with, for example, all of the ephemeris tables and the monthly section. And then I print out my own little grimoire correspondence type reference tables and stick it like in a little booklet in the back of my own day planner and just find all of the holidays and the different trances, et cetera. And then eventually I decided to just 
actually format and print one out for myself. I wanted to share it with others. And that's basically how the Metaphysician's Day Planner came to be, because this has always been my own way of planning and working through each calendar year. So when you're talking about these tables, can you describe for the listener what exactly you mean by that? What information are you trying to include? Because the planner, yes, it's about goal setting and certainly about keeping your appointments, but it's so much more. It's about planning your year through a magical lens, right? So mm-hmm. what kind of tables and what other information are you providing for them and, and why? So in the 2020 day planner, it has, for example, the seven chakras and all of the correspondences for the chakras, how to work with them, the meditation mantras for each. There's also the 12 zodiac signs, the 12 houses. There's the traditional and modern planets. So it has all of the correspondences for those indicators. That way, if you see something in a transit chart or something comes up, you can look it up immediately. There's also a reference table for rune divination. So if you happen to have runes on you, you can consult the reference table in the back of your day planner. There's tarot. There's Lenormand. There's also sigils from a Taoist sigil crafting tradition. So if you want to include them in your own craft, if you want to do anything with the sigils that's magical to empower little talismans or to empower pieces of paper that you need to hand in, like documents that you can kind of inscribe on the back of your documentation. Those are the things that I would find to be regularly useful. And so that's why I've included those. And there's a couple of other things in there as well. Exactly. So What I love about this planner is that you're incorporating all of these different esoteric systems. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to your work in general. You have such a deep knowledge of tarot, astrology. You write about the Kabbalah. You write about witchcraft, all of these different modalities. And not only do your various books and lessons and so on incorporate that, but this planner allows for people to really incorporate any kind of magic they wish as they're planning their year. So I'm wondering, how do you recommend someone uses this planner? Like, that's a lot of information you're providing for them. What is your intention with this planner? The planner comes with, I think it's about a two to 300 page guidebook. And so the guidebook goes into how I use it, the different ways to work with the reference tables. It also has a whole section that teaches you basic medieval geomancy because there's a geomancy reference in the day planner and also teaches you name analysis. So you can use numerology to run business or personal name analysis. So you recognize that for everything visible, there's an equal counterpart that's invisible. For everything that's physical, there's an equal counterpart that's metaphysical. And to really be holistic about healing or manifesting, you have to work with both. You can't ignore one and just focus on the other. So I find that it's easy for me to balance that, whether it's magical or mundane, because no matter what my goal is, if it's something as silly as, you know, exercising and and losing weight or clearing my skin, or it's something magical related to the great work, I know that there's always another component to it. And this type of a day planner keeps me in check because I'm always looking at both. Exactly. So let's say someone has a goal for 2020 of 
starting a jewelry business, <laughs> just a random mm -hmm. example. How might you suggest they get started? First, if you're looking to decide on a business name, the name analysis section will help you with that in terms of figuring out the numerology implications of the name that you're choosing for your business. The regular day planner section, as with any other day planner, you would sort of just regulate and, and strategize your different milestones for your business. Now, I think it's really important to think about, you know, when you go out, if you are planning an event, you always want to know what the weather is going to be like. So knowing astrological transits, the ephemeris tables, whether or not it's going to be astrologically a more auspicious day for what you're planning on doing, or it's going to be a little bit more challenging. So you're going to have to bring a little extra oomph from you. Mm -hmm. These are things that I always think about when I'm planning anything, whether it's starting a jewelry business or planning an event. So that's another way. And also the tarot divination reference tables, Lenormand and uh, all of the other divination reference tables. You want to kind of continually keep a pulse, keep a finger on the pulse of what your business is doing. So you do divination to kind of make sure you're staying on track. Excellent. I love that. And I love that you are allowing for people who are using the calendar to really approach their goal planning from this, as you put it, like this mundane perspective, but also this magical perspective. I think it's really powerful. So you're also this wonderful expert on astrology, and you already mentioned that the calendar has astrology woven throughout it. Can you talk a little bit about what we might be able to expect in 2020 from an astrological standpoint? You know, it's been interesting because people were predicting economic issues with the whole Capricorn thing this year, but it hasn't really happened yet. What do you mean by the, the Capricorn thing for listeners who are new to this world? Oh, yeah. Saturn and Capricorn. Saturn is one of those slower moving planets, so it stays in a sign for quite a while. And when you look back into history, every time Saturn entered Capricorn, we had stock market crash, they had the depression, recessions. And so people astrologically predicted that when Saturn entered Capricorn, we would have some stock market issues. But last year and earlier in 2018 as well, we've been in a bubble where the stock market has actually been doing very, very well. And the economy, for the most part, for investors has been really good. So we're kind of scared that it might actually burst in 2020. You know, it's interesting because when I hear people talk about the economy doing really well, I'm like, yes, the economy is doing well, maybe overall and certainly for the most wealthy. But I know anecdotally and personally, a lot of people who are struggling because, you know, their salaries haven't been increased or maybe they have multiple jobs and so on. So is it possible that this was predicting on a more like micro level people's financial struggles? Or was it absolutely about the stock market from a more macro perspective? Well, Saturn is usually more of a macro global perspective because it is slower moving. So unless you have something very specific that would be tied to Saturn in your birth chart, normally you would say it's not going to be um, as influential on the individual level. I think what you're saying that can be reconciled with actually social political issues going on. So this period has also been one that's going to be of socioeconomic turmoil. You saw the last time that we had similar astrological patterns as now was during the civil rights movement. And so we're seeing that again 
now. And I think that's going to continue. And I think anytime you have political volatility, you're going to have individual recessions. And so are you also indicating that perhaps there might be big changes coming from a political perspective in 2020? We have a big election coming up here in the U.S. Are there any hints about how that might go? Bearing in mind, you have this wonderful phrase that I came across on your website. You say that your readings are not predictive, but projective. And so I'm not asking you to necessarily foretell the future, but if you have any insights to share around how we might think about politics for 2020, I'd be really interested to know. Um, Okay. Well, if you look at both Eastern and Western astrology right now, a lot of the predictions are around. So in Chinese metaphysics, we would say there's a battle of the yin and the yang. So one way you see that is sort of the solar and lunar energies in conflict, this concept of gender maybe as well, but it's also more of a figurative perspective of gender, where I do see there's polarities and conflict. And that's going to be a big issue in 2020. How that is going to result, I don't know if there's going to be a huge overthrow of government in 2020. I think some of the things that have been going on now are going to continue because that polarity Both sides are so strong. And I think that's one thing to acknowledge. We never acknowledge the opposite side's strength, right? And so because both sides of this polarity are so strong, I don't know if that deadlock is going to yield any fruition in 2020. Mm, Time will tell, my friend. Time will tell. Oh, my goodness. So you brought up Eastern occultism or Eastern esotericism. I would love to hear about when you were first getting into, I'll call it metaphysics, since that's the word that you use, or or mysticism, was your entry into this world through tarot, through astrology? Was it through more of an Eastern modality? How did this all evolve for you? The Eastern modalities have always been part of my family. So my grandfather did traditional Chinese medicine. He created little charms. I've told that story many times, but basically in Taiwan, when my grandfather and grandmother were coming up, they were in rural southern Taiwan where they didn't really have health care. And so any form of physical health care or mental health care was taken care of through basically witchcraft, traditional medicine, and sort of shamanic practices. So that was something that both of my grandparents did, but that wasn't something that they actually encouraged passing on because those were things that you did because you had nothing else to do. You didn't have a better route to higher education or better career opportunities. So they kind of discouraged that, although they still kept up with the traditional beliefs. You don't get rid of the beliefs, but they just don't want their children to continue what they did as a professional practice. My mom immigrated to the United States. You know, we have a very, I would say, stereotypical Asian perspective on education. And so I didn't have any encouragement to continue Eastern esoteric practices in any professional capacity. That's why I went into law. In my I think elementary or junior high years, I found the tarot. And that was the sort of my latch into Western occultism. And from there, I just really dug deep into all aspects of Western occultism that I could because I found so much parallel and crossover with Eastern occultism. And I just felt like there was some common denominator here. And that's always been sort of what I 
fixated on trying to find the common denominator between all of these various mystery traditions. And is that something you feel like you've discovered or have you discovered multiple common denominators? On the micro level, yes, of course, there's a ton of common denominators, which is why I keep digging, you know, but in terms of that universal truth, no, I don't think I've discovered that quite yet. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hag Swag is a monthly subscription box geared towards weirdos, witches, hags, and alternative folk. Once subscribed, you will receive a variety of curated magical items right to your door to help amplify your craft. Hagswag curates offerings from witches worldwide to provide you with diverse and genuine offerings. Each month's theme has knowledge and offerings that are useful for both new and experienced individuals and that flow with the wheel of the year. Each theme also helps practitioners expand their existing knowledge and build their collection of tools while connecting with others in the community. Containing only cruelty-free, ethical, and gender-neutral items, this is suitable for hags of all walks of life. Use code WITCHWAVE, that's one word, WITCHWAVE, to get 5% off your first box at www.hagswag.ca. That's www.hagswag.ca. And you can also join the growing community in the Hag Coven Facebook group. So go on ahead and order your Hag Swag subscription box today. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Benabel Wen. So Benabel, you mentioned that you are a lawyer. And I love speaking to people about their day jobs and about the things that occupy their daily lives in addition to magical practice. Because most of us don't have the luxury or the good fortune of being full-time witches. A lot of us have day jobs and other things that we do, all these different identities that we hold. So can you talk a little bit about how you balance your law life with your magical life? The only part that has ever been a balancing issue is when I went into selling courses and doing readings because it became a business. So having sort of a full-blown business, at-home business, and trying to balance that with work, that part was difficult just in terms of finding time. But in terms of the belief systems, I've never found a conflict. I, I think it's the same as anybody else who's in any field and having this entire other realm of like having a hobby or having a religious belief and being a devout practitioner of that religion. And do you reveal to your colleagues during the day that you have these other interests or do you keep them pretty compartmentalized? I absolutely keep it compartmentalized. There are only a couple of people at the day job that know what I do. And they're, they're very, very supportive. I mean, I bring my tarot deck to work and I'll do readings for them or I'll read their birth charts and stuff like that. So they're very supportive. But for the most part, I do try to keep it separate. And the primary reason is I find that people will 
always judge you based on the way you present, right? And so I already have enough stacked against me that I have to prove against and fight against in order to climb up the socioeconomic ladder. Just in terms of your identity, Annabelle, what do you mean by that? Young Asian female in a field that is primarily dominated by old white men. Yep. So for me to then add on, oh, by the way, I also do astrology and tarot. Like, I just don't feel like that's something that I need to broadcast. I can relate to that because when I had a day job in corporate America, albeit it it was a, a more creative field, I was absolutely feeling like I had to prove myself and work twice as hard in order to get promotions and all of that stuff. Because while I had a generally positive experience at my day job, like a lot of companies, the corporation was pretty much run and certainly my department was pretty much run by straight white dudes who were older than me. And I did feel like I wanted them to take me seriously. And so I was very careful about who I revealed my interests to. And with time, I started being more revelatory. And I wonder if you're feeling like the longer you're there, the more you might share this other side of yourself, or if it's important to you that you keep it still a little bit concealed. Well, at this stage, I don't conceal it. I just don't reveal it, if that makes any sense. So. So there's two parts of my day job. There's one, which is the people that I work with on the day to day. And I only answer to one person. So I'm the chief legal officer at a venture capital company, which means the only person I answer to is the CEO. And then beyond the CEOs, there's the shareholders. So in a sense, I also answer to the shareholders. The CEO has an inkling of what kind of person I am. So you know, he knows kind of that I'm interested in things that are a little bit <laughs> beyond the pale of normalcy, but he doesn't know the specifics only because he doesn't he doesn't know enough. I don't think he even knows really what the tarot is, maybe just vaguely. Right. So he, he kind of has that sense, but the shareholders definitely don't. And then another thing is because we're a venture capital company, I'm constantly meeting with new people that I've never met with before, other lawyers, other potential partners and so on. So those people, for sure, I do like to kind of keep up walls. That makes a lot of sense to me. Do you find yourself utilizing the tools of tarot or astrology or what have you in your day job, even if it's under the radar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very mindful of that. I'm always thinking about where Mercury is before we sign huge contracts. I'm always looking at little things also like I don't know if I want to say spell crafting, but just, you know, in certain combative litigation situations, you might mutter things under your breath. Like what, Benabelle? <laughs> I'd rather not say. <laughs> That's fair. Fair enough. I had to ask. You understand. Right, right. Of course, of course. So I want to talk about two of the books that you've written. First of all, is it true holistic tarot? Your book is 870 pages. Yeah, yeah, it's 800 something pages. Okay. So I mean, this is the obvious question, but like how do you find time to not only have this what sounds like uh, incredibly successful day job as a lawyer and then write books that are 800 plus pages and do all of your other readings and your writing and your videos? How do you find time to do all of this? <sighs> the eternal question. I think there's many, many different moving parts to that. And I try to talk about that in all of the literature that I provide, for example, in all of the day planner 
literature, guidebook, and so on. But I think in short, it is always being cognizant of the physical and the metaphysical. So for example, I know to increase my physical stamina and wakefulness and vitality, I have to really focus on my qi. So I use qi, gong, meditation, and different forms of energy healing on myself so that one hour for an ordinary person who hasn't done that is not the same as my hour. So I've really learned how to optimize every single hour of my day. Wow. Do you have any tips on how to do that? So here's the thing I I have to say about that is I feel like there's no quick fix tips. It's a lifestyle. And if you're not willing to adopt that lifestyle, there's no quick fix tips, right? Like, I mean, it's something where you have to dedicate yourself to daily forms of meditation, daily forms of qigong, energy healing exercises. You have to be very thoughtful of your vitamin and nutrition intake. How are you eating? Are you eating the foods that balance your physiology and your body constitution according to the five phases, the elements, this is holistic medicine. And so there's all of these moving parts that you really need to be cognizant of. So for example, the rock, I'm sorry, I have such a silly example, but the rock, when he punches, it's very different from when I punch, right? You're talking about Dwayne, the rock Johnson. Dwayne, the rock Johnson. That's (laughs) why I apologize. That's why I apologize. No, don't apologize. I I admire the rock. (laughs) (laughs) But right, if Dwayne The Rock Johnson punches versus me punching, it's a whole world of difference, right? But why is that? There's so many aspects to it. It goes all the way back to many, many things that he built up for himself. 20, 30 years ago. And so there isn't a quick fix tip. It's just something that you have to build into your lifestyle. And then when you punch, you're going to punch a lot harder and with a lot more force than normal people. Absolutely. Are there certain things that you do every day? Like, do you have a routine that looks the same every day in terms of I don't know. Are you doing tarot pulls on a daily basis? Are you checking your horoscope? Are you meditating? One thing I think anyone can implement is try as many times as you can throughout the day to be mindful of how you're sitting. And this is especially applicable since a lot of us are now office junkies. We all live in offices these days where we sit in front of our computers or always sitting. So when you're sitting, pay attention to how you're sitting. Make sure your back is straight. Think of a string at the top of your head at the crown pulling you up so that you're sitting tall like a mountain. And so when you're strong and solid like a mountain, it immediately regulates your breath. And then if you have any moment to yourself, focus on the inhale and the exhale. And as you inhale, visualize inhaling. I always think of it as having a filter over you know, my breath. So I visualize inhaling all of the nutritive forces that I need and I exhale all of the toxins. And then that's something that I just do all of the time. And you take these slow, slow, deep breaths and you sit like a mountain. And that can make a huge difference in everything else that you do just by that one little thing that you implement on the daily. I love that. And of course, I have straightened my own posture as you were speaking (laughs) because I'm a bit of a sloucher. So thank you for that reminder. (laughs) I want to talk about tarot. When you wrote the book Holistic Tarot, what were you hoping to achieve and why do you think it took 800 plus pages for you to express what you wanted to express. It's a textbook. So I see it more as writing a textbook that you would get in an academic curriculum setting. My purpose, I think, was to prove that the tarot wasn't 
something that didn't need to be taken seriously. It wasn't just, you know, offhanded women around a kitchen table doing fortune telling. Like there was something very serious, worthy of academic attention. And I think that was the objective that I wrote Holistic Tarot with. Absolutely. And what does the word holistic mean in this context? (laughs) So the original title I came up with was Tarot Analytics. So I wanted to call the book Tarot Analytics. And so the whole thesis of my book was I'm presenting one very particularized approach to tarot, tarot analysis, how to analyze the tarot. And I sort of deconstruct the different analytical processes and I apply logical reasoning and different forms of logical reasoning techniques to the tarot. And I said that this isn't how you everyone should approach tarot this way. I'm I'm proposing and espousing a very specific, particularized way to approach the tarot, tarot analytics. When it got picked up for publication, the publishers didn't like the title tarot analytics. So they changed it to holistic tarot. And then we did control find every time I wrote tarot analytics in the book. <laughs> we just changed it to holistic tarot. And it is what it is. I really like the phrase though, because I do think it has perhaps a softer, more welcoming kind of energy (laughs) to it, even though one of the things I really appreciate about you, Benabel, is that you do have this kind of left brain, right brain way of approaching magical topics. And I don't have a ton of patience for flaky, you know, head in the clouds approaches. I really like substance. And it seems to me like you are such a deep researcher and thinker. And so the fact that you're so analytical about these things is something that I I truly, truly appreciate. Have you had any pushback in your family or even in yourself about whether or not the occult has value, which is why you're then trying to be so analytical about it, if that makes sense? From my family, no, absolutely not. And I think what's interesting is my mom, I wouldn't say she's kind of flaky about metaphysics. It's more that she buys into a lot of superstitions. A lot of things that she does, I've been told, oh, you have to arrange the furniture in your house this way. For example, she's a fengshui master, but she's never been able to explain to me why. She's more of an intuitive, instinctual practitioner in everything that she does. And it's powerful. So for example, if I have a couple of tarot decks out on my desk, one of them is a personal reading deck that I've charged and consecrated. And the other one is the one that I take out to fairs and events and hundreds of people have touched that deck. She can't tell the difference visually, but as soon as she touches my deck, for some reason, she'll be like, oh, this one's yucky. This one is dirty. Why haven't you? Like, how can she tell. So she's extremely powerful, but she can never explain to me why she does what she does. Same with sigil crafting, talismans. She would say, you draw this, you do that. But she could never tell me why. Why do you have three dots at the top? Or why do you have these circles at the top of these Chinese talismans? And so for me, I think my endeavors into the analytical was because I needed to answer the question why. And same with the tarot. For me, the tarot has always been deadly accurate. It works, but that's not enough for me. I guess I can't sit with, oh, it just works. I need to know why. I need to understand sort of the mechanics behind everything that's happening. So it's actually because I was living in a world where my parents are more instinctive and intuitive that I felt like I needed to understand the substance behind what they were doing. Well, your approach really resonates with me because I often call myself 
myself a pragmatic witch. Like, I wouldn't bother with any of this if it wasn't effective for me. So I just very much appreciate the way you approach this. It's very affirming. Thank you. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, honey, package arrived for you. It's gigantic. What's in it? Hooray! It's my Mithras candles. That's a lot of candles. Um, have you seen them? Mithras candles' signature dripped pillars look like they've been crafted for a wizard's secret library. Right, but... They look like they've been harvested from a magical cave of wax stalactites. Yes, but I... And their natural honey scent makes me feel so calm. You want me to feel calm, don't you? They're, they're lovely, but how many do you really need? Well, there are also now Mithras candle votives, pyramids, and tapers. With so many different shapes and sizes, I can use them on my altar, in rituals, in our living room, on the dining room table, in the bath. Plus, they make the best gifts. Amy, we live in a two-bedroom apartment. Yes, but we're supporting a sweet small business. Remember, Mithras candles are handcrafted from the purest golden cappings beeswax by the loveliest folks in Philadelphia. Well, I was made in Philadelphia too. Synchronicity, Matt. See, I'm <laughs> glowing just thinking about it. Okay. Well, giant boxes of Mithras candles being carried up the stairs it is. And if you did want to get me some more candles, just go to MithrasCandle.com and use offer code WITCH to get 10% off. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com and use offer code WITCH for 10% off. Got it. Offer code WITCH at MithrasCandle.com. Just pretend to be surprised. We never had this conversation. I am such a fan of House Witch Home and Healing, a modern metaphysical lifestyle boutique in Salem, Massachusetts, that sells homemade goods, witchy gifts, and work by local artists. I go there whenever I'm in town, and I've done events with them, and I always end up with armfuls of candles and books and other exquisite items. But if you can't get to House Witch in person yourself, not to worry, because they also have an amazing website where you can shop their independent makers and procure magical gifts over at housewitchstore.com slash shop. And even better, you can now get 13% off your online orders by using offer code 2020MAGIC. So pop on over to housewitchstore.com slash shop. That's house spelled H-A-U-S witchstore.com slash shop and use offer code 2020magic for 13% off your orders now. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Benabel Wen. So we've talked a little bit about your incredible book, Holistic Tarot, but you have a second book and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this correctly. Is it the Tao of Craft? It's T-A-O, and I'm familiar with what Taoism is, but I want to make sure that that is the way you intend for me to pronounce that word. Today in 2019, I think the way to pronounce it in a way that shows you're educated and informed would be 
Dao, D-A-O. And that's because that's the pinyin or the way that the mainland Chinese would pronounce it. The Wei Giles form of pronunciation, which is a much older antiquated system, but it's the one that's more associated with traditional Chinese and Taiwanese. So it's how traditionally the traditional Chinese language, not the modern Chinese language, was translated into English. So then that was T-A-O, Tao. I'm from that generation that's right at the cusp, the juncture point between when Taiwan was still big, you know, when I was a young child, everything was made in Taiwan, right? And now everything is made in China. Mm. So I do get confused myself only because I was born at that cusp. So sometimes I say Tao, sometimes I say Tao, and that's just because of that background. But today it's Taoism because it's linked more to mainland China. But the traditional way would be Tao, T-A-O. That's fascinating. I had no idea. Thank you for explaining that to me. And I want to talk about the content of this book. The subtitle of the Tao of Craft is Fu Talismans and Casting Sigils in the Eastern Esoteric Tradition. So what are Fu Talismans? So in the Chinese culture, the Fu Talisman, the sigil, sigil crafting is part of everything that you do. So any form of ceremonial magic or witchcraft or shamanism will in some way integrate some form of sigil crafting because we believe that the sigil, this form of uh, magical writing is the way we communicate with the gods, the way we communicate with spirits and the way we command or hold authority over demons and underworld nature spirits. So the writing system is the most important, most critical aspect of the practitioner. A Fu talisman is essentially a petition. It's a command. I think of it as like a decree that says you are authorized by a particular divinity to do X, Y, Z. And that's what the Fu talisman is. And so are they drawings? Like when I think of sigils, I'm thinking more from the Western esoteric tradition, you know, coming out of like Austin Osmond Spare and illustrations or charged symbols that are almost like visual spells. Am I picturing the correct thing with food talismans or do they look different than that? Some traditions of food talismans actually look like Solomonic seals. And then you have versions that are circular, like the Solomonic seals, and then you have versions that are square. And you also see in medieval grimoires from the West that not all of these sigils or seals were always circular. They have other shapes as well that was also more of a square. Then both traditions, Western and Eastern ceremonial magic, actually work with magic squares. And then there's sort of the differentiation whether or not they're planetary magic squares or different kinds of magic squares. And both of them work with that in terms of how they craft their sigils. Right. So these sigils are essentially still, though, spells for conjuring some kind of change in your life or protection or blessings. Is that right? Correct. Because it's the idea that when you unite action, words and thought into unity, into some kind of a trinity and in harmony with each other, then you can produce material changes in your world. So the talisman is sort of a memorialization of that trinity. And are these talismans things that you would write in a notebook or would you hang them in your home? How would you use them? 
Oh, there's so, so many ways. So the act of writing itself is what empowers, right? And so everything that you do, it's fueled by energy. If you put it on, for example, a particular stone or a particular type of paper, the assumption is that the paper or the stone or the material, the ingredient itself is bringing some form of energy to support and amplify the sigil crafting itself. Sometimes it can be written in a notebook. Other times it can be crafted onto some kind of talismanic jewelry, or it can be on a piece of paper. The traditional way that you see is on a piece of paper because it's intended, it's it's a temporary thing. It's Ephemeral. used like it's used in some way, kind of like, like a pill. So it would be discarded at the end of it. That's why it's usually put on paper. I love that. That's so interesting. And so when you wrote this book, The Tao of Craft, you are essentially hoping to teach the reader how to craft these for themselves, correct? Absolutely. And how might a person start other than reading your book? Are there certain symbols that are kind of like preset that they might incorporate or can they just work with their own personal symbol systems? Both. There are preset ones that sort of, I believe, have accrued a lot of power and efficacy because of sort of their history, right? So when you have generations upon generations of occult practitioners working magic with these sigils, that act in and of itself, that history and precedence infuses that particular symbol with a lot of power. And we see that in, I mean, this is a very intuitive idea why certain religious iconography has so much power over us, right? And so those tried and true symbols, as it were, are things that you can look into. Um, I have quite a few in a form of library on my website that you can look at. There's a roster of it in the Metaphysician's Day Planner. The book itself explains sort of how and why. It goes back to the concept of qi, yin and yang, the trinity, you know, the bakwa, the five phases, so that once you understand the chemistry and the alchemy behind sigil crafting, you can craft from scratch. And I always encourage people to know what they're doing. So even if something has a lot of precedence and you see a lot of people using a symbol, I would never use it sort of willy nilly. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do magic, especially something like this, it is important to know the anatomy of the sigil that you're working with and really understand where it comes from before you start working with it. That makes sense. So I want to talk to you about something that I get asked about a lot and that comes up a lot on the show, which is this idea of cultural appropriation. You're obviously coming out of a Taiwanese-American background, so you have been steeped in this material, and you also come with all of that history and cultural and familial context, and yet you're writing this for, you know, as you've put it on your website, a Western audience. So if somebody is not of Asian descent, are you still comfortable with them using these sigils or learning this kind of Eastern esoteric way of making magic? Yeah, the short answer is yes. In terms of the greater question of cultural appropriation, I think for one, we can't generalize with one universal aphorism for every single different form of tradition. I think every tradition is a little bit different. You have closed traditions, you have open traditions, like the relationships between different cultures are also very different. And we do inherit the baggage of our civilizations. I know people don't like to hear that, but we do. And so you have to think about the inherited 
energies that you have versus in relationship to the energies of the culture that you want to work with. Yes, there is imperialism and issues of that in the East, but I think for a lot of native East Asians, we don't have the same sort of baggage. And so we're very welcoming of the eclectic mixing and the syncretization. And also, I think it's also built into Taoism. Taoism itself is an eclectic practice. It's about having an intuitive feel for what's in your environment and harmonizing with that environment. And because we live in a global society, I think if you ignore this entire swath of culture you are actually exposed to, you're not actually harmonizing yourself with your culture, with your environment. So almost to be a wise practitioner, you do have to open your eyes, look at all of these different cultures and figure out how to harmonize and temper with that. So that's actually the perspective that I hold. I really appreciate that because in my experience, there's almost this other It's like this extreme version of, well, everyone needs to stick to their own culture. Like it's almost in my experience. Oh, I want to be really careful about how I say this, but it's almost isolating us further and saying, no, you know, we can only study what's in our own histories. And, And there are so many of us who don't really know our ancestral paths because of immigration or because of. In my family line, which, you know, I come from a long line of Jewish people, there is genocide and there are not records. I don't have this real attachment to my quote unquote homeland. Right. And so I really appreciate both the idea that we need to be very, very respectful of other people's histories and contexts. Well, at the same time, I also appreciate this idea that finding commonality in a respectful way and incorporating each other's cultures is a way of evolving culture forward. So anyhow, this this is just the kind of stuff that I've been thinking about a lot and um, I'm still learning about. So I really appreciate your perspective on it, Benabel. So there's another aspect to this too, right? So I think I really believe that at the heart of it, humans want to share. We're eager to share, especially things that we see as true. All of our sort of religions, our religious beliefs, our our mystical practices, I think intuitively we want to share with others because when we see other people loving what we hold so dear, it validates what we do. So we want to share. The problem is actual history. I think European civilization, America's manifest destiny, these ideas of colonialism, Um, The problem is what they've done. They go to these other cultures, take what they want, bring it back to like the British Museum, leave the garbage in the original homeland and kind of destroy other people's cultures. So you have this long history of a very specific civilization doing this to all of these other civilizations and every other cult. You go to Greece, you go to South America, you go to China. They have these museums of broken things and say, well, these are the broken pieces of our culture. If you want to see the real deal, you have to go to the British Museum. You know, And so when you have that history, it's hard not to be sympathetic to people saying, you know what, just get the fuck out. I don't want you to be in my culture. So I understand that as well. I do, too. I very much do. You have this phrase that you wrote about cultural appropriation that I I think I'll just read verbatim because it gave me a lot of food for thought. You write, 
Crafting foo sigils within the context of any serious magical tradition is not cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation happens if the foo is treated as decorative ornamentation or if the practice is not regarded with the same veneration a practitioner would treat similar practices in his or her own tradition, unquote. And I really love how you differentiate between, you know, something that's ornamental or decorative versus something that is being treated as an active, magical symbol with a long history. And I think it's frankly very generous of you. And I would understand if someone felt differently, but I I think it's very generous of you to welcome people from different backgrounds into that practice. I definitely do. I'm always happy and and elated and really excited when I see people who are not Native Asians interested in Asian mysticism. Like, that's just really something that makes me happy. But it's different than just putting a foo sigil like on a T-shirt and you don't know (laughs) what it means or you're selling these objects without really putting in the study or the intention for them. Right. Is that how you would differentiate? At the end of the day, it's the intention. You know, there it has to be case by case. You have to look at one specific individual case or incident and really think about it in a, you know, discretionary way. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense to me. So this podcast is called The Witch Wave. You talk about specific witchcraft in some of your courses. That is a word that I've noticed that you use Can you talk about your relationship to the word witch or witchcraft? Is that a word that you identify with? Yeah, but here's the thing. So when I do a translation into Chinese, like wu, right, or wu shu, which is witchcraft, these terms are terms that culturally you don't self-identify with. It's something that your community would give you as a title. You know, and so it almost is an honorary title. And I know it's a very different culture in the West, but I think I haven't been able to get over that. So for me, if other people identify what I do as witchcraft or identify me as a witch, that's awesome. I would never, ever reject it. And I think that's really cool. You don't see me self-identifying with that because I just don't feel comfortable. I feel like it's it's almost like seizing an honorary title. It's just it's a little weird. Like if you say, oh, I'm a master or I'm a guru. Like, it's just a little weird to me to to do that. So that's the reason I don't. That makes so much sense. Now, is there also a differentiation in Eastern culture between like a malevolent witch and a benevolent witch? Because that's something that I've come across in my research, which admittedly is mostly focused on the Western witch, often a European-derived witch, where, you know, the word witch traditionally was a negative epithet. It was used to describe someone who, you know, would hex you or cast black magic spells on you. And it's only been a fairly recent development that the word witch has been resignified as positive. And I trace it to around, you know, the 19th century with the rise of the first wave of feminism and so on. Whereas there would be words like cunning person or cunning woman, cunning man, cunning folk, which was a more positive version of being a witch. Certainly in, you know, Latinx cultures, there's curandera, which is like a healer versus bruja, which is 
a negative, you know, malevolent witch, although, of course, the word bruja is now being resignified as a positive word uh, in today's context. Is there a similar, I don't know, binary in the language in Eastern esotericism? So in traditional Taoism, which is the, the religion native to to China. And when you talk about Taoist forms of shamanism, the earliest ones back to the first three civilizations, you know, the Paleolithic period as well. When you talk about early traditions, they didn't differentiate. Uh, Shamans would kind of practice both. There was this idea of sometimes you needed to do something that was good intention. Sometimes you needed to do something that was more malintentioned or penalizing, right? It's about sort of exacting justice or exacting revenge. And there's just these different aspects. And then layering over that, there are different moral codes. And there's always these philosophical debates over which moral code should prevail. You have Confucianism, you have legalism. And then when Buddhism came into China, then you had the Buddhist ethics as well. So you have different ethical paradigms that have their belief systems on how to work with magic. And so I think there's that differentiation. You have magic as a neutral energy that can be used in different ways that conform to human intentions. And human intentions can be beneficent or baneful. Now, how you use magic for your intentions is an ethical code that will be governed by the religious philosophy that you hold. How interesting. Are you still in touch with anyone from Taiwan or China? And if so, I'm wondering if the interest in witchcraft that we're seeing here in the United States is happening whether it's an eclectic version of witchcraft or just a resurgence of interest in Eastern esotericism, are you seeing any of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Taiwanese and I'm connected to a lot of family in who are still practitioners in Taiwan. So in Taiwan, there's actually been a general public resurgence of interest in Taiwanese shamanism or forms of summonings, exorcisms, those sorts of practices, which you know, for a while they were kind of discouraged. They were seen as antiquated, backwards, uneducated, and so on. But now there's this resurgence from the, you know, sort of educated elite, like, oh, this is really interesting and getting back in touch with their roots and promoting forms of Taiwanese shamanism. And that's on the island of Taiwan. In terms of the mainland, what I've seen of the mainland Chinese is that there's a resurgence or there's an interest in the new age, or that's how I would express it. They're interested in crystals, crystal healing, chakras, and the new age aspects of metaphysics. So it's really similar. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And why do you think that is? Why do you think globally so many people are gravitating towards different forms of magic? Um, I think it's cyclic, you know, for one. I think we're just at this point of redefining how we look at science. We're at a point where science can't answer all of our questions. We're seeing that in astrophysics, for example. There's we're, We're having a lot more questions than we have answers to. The effect of the Age of Enlightenment and human reason from Europe, the power and hold of that globally is starting to wane. And so you're having alternative modalities of how science is defined. Because remember how we define science beyond a systematic way of approaching problem solving, our idea of science actually comes out of European enlightenment. And so now you're seeing a greater influence from other cultures, from the Eastern culture and from the South American cultures, from, you know, Jewish culture as well, where, you know, it's a little bit more fluid. And because it's a little bit more fluid, 
we are rethinking how we look at energy. And that's why I think we have a resurgence in metaphysics, because we always begin with magic, superstitions and the folklore in order for us to then sort of hammer that out systematically into a scientific law. And so if you look at where astronomy came from, it came from astrology. If you look at where chemistry came from, it came from alchemy. And a lot of what these sciences come from don't hold up to scientific scrutiny, but you have to begin someplace. So that's the origin point of science. Sure. But then to follow your logic, are you implying that all of the things that you are devoted to, like numerology or astrology, that they are not then scientific? I don't know. I find that a little bit contradictory, I guess. I don't think so. For example, astrology, right? So you hear a lot of what people say on the internet and social media about Mercury retrograde, Mercury retrograde, everyone hide, right? So I think that level of astrology, I don't see as systematic. But then if you have a certain method to it, then when you're really digging deep into an astrological chart or a chart casting, then that is more systematic. There is a science to that. Numerology, if you approach it with a particular rigor, then that is, for me, a form of science or getting there. But I think there are also aspects to numerology that are still in the realm of superstition, folklore, and kind of like old wives' tales. But I think there's ways to approach it. Do you see what I'm saying? So I don't think every single approach to these different practices can be categorized as scientific. Yeah. But I think there is a science to it. I mean, in and of itself, there's a science to it. But I think it's a sophisticated science that does require specialized knowledge, training, cultivating a sense of approach that will lift it up to a form of science. Whereas because it is still in a murky realm, it is the pioneer of science. So it's the beginnings of science, the origin point. That's why a lot of it is still kind of not really hashed out and scientific. That makes sense to me. Thank you for clarifying that. So Benabel, you offer so many different courses and writings and readings that engage with various paths, everything from numerology to astrology to tarot. I mean, we've touched on quite a bit of them, but I would love to get a sense of for someone who's very new to this world, like where do they begin? How do they know if they should start with tarot or if they should start making food talismans? How would you guide them? The entry point for everybody up the mountain is going to be different. And that's kind of the fact of the practitioner's life. So I think you need to follow your intuition there in terms of what interests you, where do you feel most pulled to? And you do want to lay a very strong foundation in one area first, because that foundation is what you're building everything else on. So if you learn too many things all at once, I think it's really difficult to have that solid foundation in theoretics that you can build upon later because you only know the superficial aspect of every single thing. So digging deep into one thing and really 
finding a level of mastery there, understanding the theory and, you know, the four elements behind it. There's always aspects of anatomy to any practice that you're looking at in metaphysics. There's always going to be the four elements. There's the Trinity. There's all of these little components. If you understand that and you build a strong, solid mastery over that, then you can start branching out, expanding and looking at different uh, other studies. How wonderful. And finally, do you have a sense of the next branch of study that you're going to be embarking on? So I've been speaking to a lot of Kabbalists and what's really fascinating is you have this weird sympathetical relationship, you know, between the Jewish and the Chinese culture. For example, a lot of people who are ethnically Jewish who decide, you know what, I'm going to learn Buddhism or Taoism. And then they later return to the Kabbalah. They find that they run parallel, that they sort of, if you peel back the terminology they're both saying the same thing at the end of the day. They arrive at the same core truths. And those who really dig deep into Taoism and uh, esoteric Buddhism, for some reason, find their way to the Kabbalah. And so I want to understand why, what the connection is there. And, and that's sort of the next ground that I'm tackling. How fabulous. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. In the meantime, Benabel, if folks want to get a reading from you, if they want to take some of your courses, where's the best way for them to find you? Uh, my website, benabellwen.com. And that's spelled B-E-N-E-B-E-L-L-W-E-N.com, correct? Correct. Fabulous. And are you on Instagram or Twitter or any of those good places? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at Bellwen, B-E-L-L-W-E-N, and uh, on Twitter at Tarot Analysis. Fabulous. And I highly recommend that they check out all of your amazing blog posts and videos that you have online, too. I mean, my goodness, there is such a treasure trove that you've created for us, Benabel. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your rigor, your open heartedness, open mindedness. And thank you for being on The Witch Wave. Thank you, Pam. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Benabel Wen for her vast knowledge and a wide open mind. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and you just might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witch Wave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a big, 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 big difference and it helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my Witch Emoji for iPhone by going to WitchEmoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on... The Witch Wave.